The future of health coaching. Opportunity, action, impact. Brought to you by Teleosis Institute, coaching and narrative healing. Welcome to this interview with Reggie Mara. I'm Gary Huffaker. I've been a member of the Teleosis board for about a year. And we today are going to be interviewing Reggie Mara, who's going to be one of the teachers uh, in an upcoming series. And so we're going to be talking today a bit about narrative healing and the importance of narrative. Um, before we begin, just a brief uh, word uh, about Reggie. Uh, he's the creative director and core faculty member at the Teleosis Institute. He's an educator and has been one for 40 years. He's author of three volumes of poetry and four of nonfiction. His most recent volume, which I just happen to have right here, is entitled, And Now Still, Grave and Goofy Poems. And this book was released uh, just a few months ago in January of this year. He's presented his work for the National Association for Poetry Therapy, the National Speakers Association, the Spirituality Institute at Iona College, the Transformative Language Arts Network, and the Connecticut Office of the Arts, among others. Reggie's an integral master coach and on the faculty at Integral Coaching Canada, uh, as well as a mentor coach with the International Coach Federation. He has served on the visiting faculty at Maryland University of Integrative Health and the Graduate Institute. Uh, you can learn more if you look at his website, Reggie Mara, R-E-G-G-I-E-M-A-R-R-A.com. Reggie, welcome. I look forward to this opportunity to speak with you. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for that introduction, and I'm looking forward to our conversation as well. Yeah. So, Reggie, um, you have said in the past uh, that whether conscious or not, all of us have a story a narrative, a kind of view of the world and of specific issues, uh, including health. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a, a great way to start. And thank you for that question. Um, but you know, by story or narrative, we're, we, we're speaking literally about a story, but it's our view of the world. You know, how any one of us, how each of us believes the world is. And it, it, uh, it can come from conscious choice and intentional choice um, to tell our own story. But early on, it, it comes from our interpretations of our childhood experiences. It comes from our families of origin, our religions or lack thereof, mm -hmm. our, our local communities, our, our, our nationalities. It comes from a lot of sources. Um, and if it's not intentional, we tend to think of our story as the way the world is. Once it becomes intentional, we think of our story as how we see the world. Mm. Um, and whether we're intentional or not, it's there. So the goal is to make our stories intentional. And in so doing, um, we have some level of influence and even control over whether our story limits us or our story um, moves us forward, in, in this case, in our conversation, in a healing way. So, so this word intentional is an important word that you've just used. And I'm, sorry, I'm wondering how a person can choose to make their story intentional as opposed, what would be the opposite of that? 
Um, story. Yeah, actually, that's a great question because what I would just momentarily substitute for intentional would be conscious. Because oh, okay. And so, uh, and I'm meaning the same same thing, but the opposite of a conscious story is an unconscious one, and it's the story that's that's going on behind our eyes that we haven't taken the time um, to really take a look at yet. How do I see the world? What do I really believe? Mm -hmm. And are these beliefs mine? Did I choose them? Or have they, are they choosing me? Were they given to me by some bigger force, family, culture, um, or whatever? So right. the opposite is so what we want to do, we're speaking about with narrative healing, is we choose to make our 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 stories conscious, bring them into consciousness so we can see them, move them from subject, um, which is kind of behind my eyes and how I see, to object, mm -hmm. where once it's an object, I can do something with it. I can work on it or operate on it. Yeah, I'm using Keegan's famous uh, methodology there. So once the story then becomes intentional, um, then we have some choices about that story. It sounds like you're suggesting whether yeah. that is, is functioning well or not functioning well for us. Right. And there's, and there's fortunately, you know, as we're, we have this conversation in 2016, um, there's over 30 years of research on the impact that our stories have on us. Um, you know, would come, two names come to mind, and there are many more than these two, but James Pennebaker, um, who's at the University of Texas, and I want to say Austin, but I know it's in Texas. I'm not sure which one. And then Louis Mel Madrona, who is a Stanford-based uh, psychiatrist and also brings Native American wisdom to his, his work. Um, both of them have a, a, an extensive amount of, of research and anecdotal evidence that our stories impact um, how we live our lives. And Mary Catherine Bateson, the anthropologist, has a wonderful quote that says, the story we choose affects what we can do next. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the research is really is, is uh, extensive. And once I'm, I'm going to speak in a first person just for a moment, once I'm able to bring my story to consciousness and see both what I tell in it and how I tell it, um, I can begin to see if it's holding me back in some way or if it's moving me forward in the context of healing, whether I'm trying to heal from a, an illness, from an injury, from a loss, such as you know, dealing with grief. Um, once I can begin to uh, see my story again, to revision it or revise it, uh, I can make choices that tell a more um, healing story as opposed to one that keeps me stuck or limited. Yeah, yeah. you know, it sounds like what is happening when a story becomes intentional is to some extent um, uh, inevitably results in us taking ownership of the story. It's kind of like an insight, a psychotherapeutic insight or something where all of a sudden something that seems to be happening to us is something that we can own as, as our own really. And all of a sudden, the downside, of course, is that if, if our story isn't functioning very well, it hurts. But the upside is that we, if we own something, we can do something about it. You know, we can make some of these choices that you're talking about. 
I, I agree. I, I like the way you, you said that. Uh, with owning our story comes, uh, with owning anything, but yeah. with our story comes two uh, wonderful gifts that we have as human beings. One is freedom to, to revise it and tell it in a way that serves us, but with that freedom comes responsibility. Because um, we're not speaking, and I'll state the obvious here, we're not speaking about telling a story that's dishonest in order to get somewhere with it. But we're, t we're saying finding a version of it that moves us in a healthy way, whatever that means in, in your or my or anyone else's given um, life conditions at the moment, and you know, tell a story that's, that's beneficial, that's healing, and not one that, that, that is... Uh, you know, pathological or that, you know, harms us or someone else for that matter. And the word that comes up here that I've heard you use before is salutogenic, uh, yeah. or I guess the other would be pathogenic, uh, the other side of that. The yeah, um, to, to, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that was, uh, you know, Anton Antonovsky, who's, uh, who's deceased, but he was an Israeli-American sociologist. Who, who really coined the, the word salutogenesis, or you know, having its origin in health. And we juxtapose that or oppose that with uh, pathogenesis, which having its origin in disease or lack of health. Um, and a salutogenic approach is one which um, doesn't wait around till something breaks to then fix it, which is the conventional uh, what I would say Western or allopathic medical model, um, but basically sees health and disease as part of this continuum. And at any moment in my life, I'm located somewhere on that continuum between um, health and disease or, or wellness and disease. Um, and so the, a salutogenic approach basically says, uh, you know, what can I do to keep my, to, first of all, to locate where I am. And then what can I do? How can I tell my story if we're speaking about narrative in a way that keeps me working on orienting from a healthy perspective as opposed to thinking, oh, this is broken. I'm sick now. I need to go get it fixed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with the caveat, we're not saying that there's never a time to get it fixed. Sure. Uh, I, I have ceramic and titanium hips. Without those, uh, my mobility, I've had them for 13 years, would be significantly decreased um, right now. So in no way was that a, uh, a deprecata deprecation or uh, a casting away of modern medicine. Just so we're clear Confession is good for the soul. I have an artificial mitral valve okay. that I've had for seven or eight years. Yeah. That's keeping me alive too, thank God. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. You know, I wanted to ask you before we get too much farther into this part of it, just maybe a brief aside because of, of this interesting sort of word. But the idea of having a personal narrative and a, a sort of cultural or community narrative sounds a little bit like the difference between indiv individual narrative and myth, where myth becomes sort of the culture's story about a certain thing. And I was thinking as we were preparing for this uh, interview of how Joseph Campbell made myth such a really important 
and, and, and he sort of resurrected the term from being a pejorative term about falsehood and turned it into something even more true. Uh, but, but there we're talking a little bit more about cultural uh, and collective myth rather than individual myth. Can you say a few words about the, the difference between those? Yeah, that's actually, we could probably speak for a few hours on that. Yes. Um, but no, I love that you brought that in because each of us, each of our personal myths, and I'm going to say it that way, um, because the best I can do, and I'll say this in, again in first person, so I'm not projecting out to you or anybody who might listen to this, even <laughs> though I know it's true for everybody. <laughs> um, the best that I can do is be truthful as I tell my story. In other words, the odds are, I mean, not, let me back away from that for a second. Not that the odds are. Um, my chosen narrative, the one I choose to tell, is one of many I could tell. So in that regard, it's not 100% um, objectively true. But no matter how I tell it and which story I choose, um, even with my best efforts, uh, there's a cultural myth within which I'm telling this story. So to, to cut to the chase here, um, and, and I'm glad you, you brought that up because it's, it's, a, it's unavoidable. As you and I are speaking right now, the power of the culture is speaking through us in various ways, and there's no escaping that. Mm -hmm. um, but to fine tune, so my cultural myth began in a geographic area known as New York, just, just north of the city itself, um, Italian-American, blue-collar, uh, Catholic. And there's a lot of myth there. There's a, you know, and everybody who's listening to this can name their myth, of their, their literal childhood myth as well. And myth is wonderful when it's understood as such. It becomes dangerous and even deadly when it's taken to be literally true. Um, so whether we're talking about the Greek or Roman myths, whether we're speaking about some of the myths, and I mean that in a very respectful way, of the major religions, um, those impact our respective personal stories. Uh, and the more aware I am of how my cultural myth is impacting the choices I make in my personal narrative, uh, the more, I'll say, effective or perhaps even more accurate I can be with my personal story. So I don't know if I answered your question. But yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. That's exactly. Uh, what I was feeling, you know, needed to be, needed to be sort of brought out at least and, and, uh, and uh, emphasized. And, and of course, um, you know, one of the questions that arose after those of us who watched that series uh, watched it was, what myth works for me today? And all of a sudden we have, we have an intentionality about myth, uh, a, a collective myth that we didn't have uh, before, which is really, I think, very helpful. I was wondering um, about maybe going to some of your poetry, Reggie. Um, you've uh, given me a few poems, and I, of course, have the book here that has a lot more of them. And I recommend it's available on Amazon, by the way, I know. Um, Thank you, Gary. Would you, um, would you, uh, I would maybe perhaps this one about when I make myself small, 
might be a good one to sort of put in here after we talk about this intentionality, you know? Sure. Um, yeah, I'd love to. And, and thank, I'll, I'll say a little bit about the poem itself too, in part of the process, which is tied, tied in with um, my own narrative and how I tell it. So the language here, when I make myself small, um, initial iterations of that included things like when I feel small, when I am small, those are the two other major ones. There were some others that I don't remember now. Or when my dad made me feel small. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, you know, perfect. So what I decided, and this is again, a choice of how to tell this story. And all of the poems in this book are part of my own healing narrative. Not, not that I've ever personally felt small in my life, but I've heard <laughs> other people do. Um, but I felt it was important to own that. You know, it was when I make myself smil feel small because there's a choice there. There really is. So I'll, I'll read the poem and then we'll, we'll see what happens next. Um, Good. When I make myself small. When missing coins, newer clothes and cars, finer wines, wonderful workshops, alluring eyes, perspective or even present, promise, pleasure or pain define me. My vision narrows. I feel small and can no longer lose or risk losing what leaves or what I love and still live and love fully. Within my small embrace, fear fills the little bit of me that's left. I'm not good enough. And how could you do this to me? Become useful, meaningful, or even true. When I make myself small, the world and you are small, and our separate smallness blends and blames until it becomes us and all there is. How much smallness in this infinite unfolding is mine, yours, ours, theirs? Interesting questions and irrelevant. Time to let go. Mm. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. You, you know, yeah, when I read this, I thought, you know, the first part of it, it used the interesting terminology, within my small embrace. And I thought within my small embrace, that feels like grasping to me. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, I love that. Yeah. yeah. And then the very last line, you know, wow. So I think you, you, you have a wide gamut here, you know, from holding tight and from opening up, you know. I actually, I love that you um, pointed to the small em embrace and that your connection with that took you to the idea of grasping. Because I, I mean, and that's what's beautiful about the arts and about narrative healing in general is that each of us brings diff our own unique perspective to anything, obviously. And as much as I had an image of a small embrace and how limiting that was, my image of it was more, you know, I'm contracting myself this way, making, keeping, you know, not embracing the world and life, but kind of in here. And the idea of, of grasping and holding on, on um, that image didn't occur to me 
as the poem emerged. So I love that you named that. Now, I'm definitely going to steal it now. Um, oh, great, great. Yeah. And, and that you then tied it in, which again, I did tie it in with the end, letting go of the small embrace, let that go at the end of the poem. So yeah, so wonderful to hear your, your, uh, your connection there. You know, the other thing that struck me, Reggie, was this feels like a male perspective, which it is, obviously. But I mean, the stuff you were talking about, coins, clothes, of course, a woman would feel that as well. But cars no my wife doesn't care if i've got a tesla or not she really doesn't care and i see those and think wow that'd be nice to have but finer wines i mean these are all things that i feel are things i can identify with as a male um and it, of course i'm going back to my 50th high school reunion soon and that reminds me of being very small okay very small you know, not having very much knowledge or not having a car or, you know, the richer kids had cars and so on. The things that males felt when they were adolescents, I'm sure the females had feelings of smallness too. But I like the, I like the fact that this is a masculine story that you're telling here. So what I'm going to do now, because, because we're talking about individual stories and narratives, I'm going to actually disagree a little bit here. Okay. And again, when I say disagree, in terms of the perspectives um, I held as the poem emerged, um, the, the idea of, of uh, you know, clothes as, you know, for me, it's just, you know, if I could live my life in a t-shirt and jeans, I'm really happy. So that, for me, that doesn't come, you know, across at all as being particularly masculine for you know, in my version of that yeah, yeah, yeah. and and perhaps it's because i'm so much in touch with my feminine side that i'm I've, i'm fully integrated and so it, it all blends together that is so <laughs> uh, i'm joking about that but but also i mean finer wines i mean my my favorite two wines are are good stout and bourbon so I, so even finer wine for me in my version of masculinity i mean i, I like wine but it's not something that i would really um you know, look for or look to in order to to feel better about myself. So, so mm -hmm. it's interesting when you said that it felt very masculine. Um, that wasn't my take on it at all. So, and I say that primarily because of our overarching topic. Yeah, yeah. We're talking yeah. about narrative healing, and what each of us brings to that process. There's no one size fits all or one perspective is right it's what fits me in particular or you in particular. So I'm actually glad that you, you pointed to it in that way. Yeah, we have the same poem, but we really have, um, you know, very, various masculine iterations of our interpretation. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you for reading that. Um, You're very welcome. For, and for conceiving that, you know, for us. When I make myself small, yes, um, it is a choice. It is a choice. And, you know, that's one reason why maybe a lot of people aren't going to be coming back to the 50th reunion because they don't realize it's a choice. It just makes them feel small. And they don't, they, they don't have that perspective. So maybe we should make sure all 50th reunion classes get this video to watch, Reggie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that you said that, I mean, 
joking a little bit with some seriousness brings us back to the initial point about um, having, you know, that it is a choice, but it's only a choice if the story about making myself small is conscious. If I feel small, or if my worldview is I am small, and um, then I don't really have a choice yet. Until I can see that as a story that I have some wiggle room within or that I can change entirely, um, if, if it's not conscious, I don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. And that's, so I, I'm, it, that's a real important point. And that's, you mentioned you know, Robert Keegan earlier, and that's his great contribution, that development, you know, the great snapshot of development is, is when the subject of one level of development uh, becomes the object of the subject of the next level. So I can then operate on this object and work with it. And that's what story allows us to do. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the fact that, that also this poem is pointing us to the fact that when we feel small, we need to start investigating the story that we're finding ourselves in. It's not an all or none phenomenon. You know, if I go to certain settings, I feel small. And all of a sudden, this poem is going to come to my mind, and I'm going to say, hey, you know, is this really the way I want to function in this environment, you know? Um, Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, this this is like, in a way, um, the difference between having uh, a perspective and being had by the perspective. I think I've heard this put it that way in other settings. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, and again, that's, you know, Keegan has used that word in, in his immunity to change process as well. Um, talking about assumptions, um, having assumptions versus being had by them. And we're saying basically the same thing here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's investigate um, the whole idea of uh, the fact that we have specifically narratives about illness or narratives about healing in in perhaps a more specific way. I read your account of your experiences you went through a number of years ago. Um, And I know you have a story yourself that you told and written in the past. Uh, We all have these stories. So um, tell me a little bit about what characterizes uh, some of these healing narratives that we share. Sure. Um, I I can, when when I first began to explore my own healing, it became evident to me, um, and probably it didn't become immediately evident to me though, after some extensive exploration, I was able to see that certain things um, enhanced or moved my ability to heal forward and other things did not. And, and what I'd like to do before I even unfold that further is uh, speak to what I mean when I say healing. Because uh, I think we're, we, you know, we've been using that word and I'm sure it means a lot to a lot of different people. Um, first of all, it doesn't mean curing anything um, you know, or fixing anything. So if I break my arm, um, because in a cast, and eventually we say that heals, and um, and that's great. It's a physiological healing, and we like that. And everybody, no one I know is is against that. 
but what I'm speaking about is, and I think these are John Kabat-Zinn's words, or something very close to this. For me, healing is coming to terms with things as they are. Doing my best to see the world as accurately as I can and not refusing to try to change things. Trying to change is fine, but in this given moment, recognizing this is what's true. Whether it's the cancer diagnosis, the broken arm, the loss of a loved one, the end of a relationship, right now, this is true. And the first step in healing is coming to terms with um, my best shot at what's true in the moment. Now, I really like the fact that that opens the door a little bit for a person who has terminal cancer to have a healing experience. Yeah. I like that. I really like that. Yeah, and, and, and what, we've, what we have learned, and when I say we, it's uh, there's a, um, those of us at teleosis, um, but there's a larger group of, of colleagues who have worked together for four years working on coaching and healing, you know, two of whom are cancer survivors right now, um, and all of whom have something else that they're surviving um, in various levels of intensity, um, is that we've learned that we do it in different ways, that the healing emerges for each of us in different ways. Um, so what I, what's important to remember is we want both curing and healing when curing is appropriate. Sure, sure. And it's very possible to be cured or fixed without any healing. So if, my, if I'm still telling a story that keeps me stuck and angry or feel like a victim, even though my cancer is in remission or gone, or my arm is healed, um, I'm cured, but I'm not healed. It's possible also in a terminal situation to not have curing as a possibility, but to be healed, to, or to be in a, in a wonderfully nurturing healing process. Mm-hmm. I would argue that healing is an ongoing process that does not, okay, I'm done healing. I don't know if that actually happens. Um, it, excuse me, in my experience, it doesn't. Um, but it happens in different ways for different people. Uh, and I know you asked the question that we're talking around right now, but you know what I found in my own experience that there were five practices that moved my healing narrative forward that enabled me or empowered me to heal. Um, and I wasn't, I did them because they were nurturing. I, I didn't do them because I particularly knew they were healing. I learned that in hindsight. And, and those would be? Yeah. Uh, so in no particular order, and it just has to come to me now. One is writing, because I, I mean, I've been a writer for, you know, the better part of 40 years. Um, so writing definitely helps me. And that's one of the reasons we, we work with narrative healing. Um, meditation. You know, I've had a sitting practice um, for 20 some odd years now. Wandering in nature, um, the natural world is one of the great healers for me, just to be there, just to be away from buildings and cities and noise is, is great. Um, physical exercise, I was a middle of the pack uh, runner for several decades and um, basketball coach and, and player for years, and I also continue to work out. And then the, the one that is strongest in my life right now that I really have turned to more and more 
is what I would describe as intimate um, conversation slash relationship. And the intimate is the emotional intimacy. I'm not speaking about physical intimacy. I'm not negating that, but specifically the word intimate is about emotional intimacy. To be able to be with another person and be completely raw, honest, and open and feel safe and held um, is an immensely healing uh, experience. And it's one of the things we, um, we build into uh, the relationship aspect we build into the, the courses at teleosis on um, both living poems and the narrative the narrative healing course um there is the uh, part of uh, that, that we uh, we ask people to share and respond to each other in really safe specific ways so those, but those five in general have been healing for me and if you know if we if i ask you or we ask 10 other people we might hear some of those repeated but um, it's a very, very unique, discreet, and individualized process, as far as I can tell. Yeah, thank you. Th- those were very, very helpful to think about. Um, and it, the last point that you made about this ability to have an intimate relationship and conversation with someone reminds me of the work of a psychiatrist, actually, at Harvard, named Greg Frischioni who talks about attachment theory as being the underlying um, structure or a, a construct, of course, that underlies the ability of the, the physician and the patient and, of course, the coach and the coachee and so on to, to really move forward in a, in a very um, confident, held environment. Um, it fits in very, very nicely with that. He has a whole book on attachment theory as to, as to the way it applies to the healing professions. Fantastic. Okay. And I'm, I'm actually uh, I'm grateful that you named that because one of our other presenters, in fact, one of our uh, keynoters, uh, David Drake, who is the founder basically of Narrative Coaching and whose book Narrative Coaching is I think it came out in, in 2015. It's a recent book, but he both writes to, speaks about, and uh, and and asserts the importance of um, attachment theory as part of the underpinnings of his work as well. So I that makes perfect sense that you would name uh, you know someone else who 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 sees that as important and, and yeah to be able to connect to someone else in a safe emotionally full way is is uh you know we learn that early on i mean we can we can learn it moving forward if we have to but the easiest place to learn that is in the healthy um infancy i think yeah right yeah and uh, it's interesting as an aside to think about how often uh, i happen to be a physician but to think of how often physicians who could exploit that attachment run away from it instead yeah. Yeah. so the, the uh, obvious lesson there being to sit for a minute and interact and and let this kind of connection develop um, i think it might be time for another poem are you up for that sure um so we have well we have a whole book full but yeah you and i did mention 
you know, to others, you have a, a sense of what might fit into this point in our conversation, um, the old lesson or the sniper? Well, I think they would, I think they would obviously both uh, fit in, but maybe it might be nice since we chatted a bit about the sniper before we started taping. Uh, why don't you do that one? I, I like the, I like the way that conversation went earlier. Sure. sure. Um, so just a, a quick, yeah, the, the academic poets said that you shouldn't have to ever explain your poem, that the poem should speak for itself, but I've never been an academic poet. Uh, so th this poem actually um, you know, speaks to uh, the loss of my sister. And, um, and she wasn't, you know, just so it's not literally taken by anyone, she wasn't killed by a sniper. Um, but she was held hostage by certain views of the world that didn't serve her. Um, and in watching uh, a show on, on literal snipers, on, on people in the military or law enforcement who, who use that particular expertise in a, in a way to um, resolve difficult hostage situations, I picked up some language and um, the poem emerged using the, the, the language of uh, specifically law enforcement snipers. And, um, applied to the, you know, my sisters and I would say all of our ability to get stuck um, or held hostage by something. So this is the sniper. The sniper breathes deep, slow, squints through the scope. Truth in the crosshairs, the solution, precisely committed to freeing the hostage. Last resort, attainable horizon, not a solution, but the solution. When negotiation or hard work fails or takes too long. If only it were that easy, held hostage as we are, bliss and rage, reason and myth, memory, all of them, always them, without which we might see clearly, find freedom. Who was the sniper for the pain that held you hostage? What did she see or not through that narrow scope before she squeezed the trigger? Another option, perhaps, just outside her field of view, a hair away from your final solution. We all play each role, taker, hostage, sniper, moment to moment holding, held, setting free problem and solution. We love the scope, the crosshairs promise, at times too slow or quick to squeeze the trigger. Release the solution's allure and terror. Mm. Mm. The last word really throws, uh, throws it into an interesting place for me, terror. So sometimes having our hostages released and escaping from the hostage taker can be a moment of terror for us. Um, yeah, for, for me, that language comes back to um, both freedom and responsibility, the release, and then with the release suddenly, oh, now I'm no longer held hostage. I have some responsibility for what's next. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's terrifying um, in given context for all of us, I think. Right. Yeah, this is mine to deal with now. Yeah. You know, and I, I told Reggie before this, um, this conversation that I've never been a fan of, of snipers, particularly. And when the movie came out a year or so ago, American Sniper, I turned my nose up a bit and didn't want to uh, see that movie. Um, but, you know, just hearing Reggie read this poem makes me realize that there's, um, that life is too complicated for uh, us to be um, interpreting even a sniper at just one level because really isn't the sniper kind of like the coach or the healer in this poem that's kind of a turnaround i mean we think of it as i think of it as being the the militant you know um the right winger if you will yeah yeah i mean in this in this particular poem the 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 image of the sniper is is uh the person whom or that which um sets me free from whatever was holding me hostage. So yeah, yeah. Um, language is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very evocative. And, and, and I can't help but point out this one sort of explanatory verse where he, you say, we all play each role. We all play each role. It makes the question come to me, what role am I playing right now? You know, am I playing the role of a taker or the hostage or the sniper uh, and especially in certain emotionally fraught situations it might be appropriate to think about that and, and I, again i love that you went to that question about which role because what you're doing with that question is attempting to bring in this case your immediate story into consciousness Am I holding, am I the hostage taker? Am I the hostage or am I the one trying to set free in this, in this moment? Because it shifts, it goes, you know, you know, I know. It's, 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 uh, it's an ongoing, wonderful narrative that we have here and, and no one plays just one role all the time. Yes, yes. Though we might wish it so. Uh, yeah. Those of us who are, are healers, quotes, healers, um, sometimes take hostages. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. So Reggie, it's been great having this conversation with you today. It looks like we're nearing the end of our time. I think we need to uh, put in a good word for the upcoming teleosis programs that are uh, about to be rolled out. Would you like to tell the eager listeners a little bit about those? Sure. We had so there are a, a series of programs beginning in in June, um, and and in fact shortly after this the summer uh, airs live. Uh, but the two in particular tied into our talk are narrative healing, and that will be it's a course that Lois McNaughton, one of one of my colleagues and I, developed, and she'll be Lois will be teaching that. I believe it starts on June twenty second, and the second one is living poems, writing lives. Uh, which also deals with narrative healing, but with a poetic um, uh, 
uh, undertone or foundation to it where we actually take poetic tools and, and use some of the crafting tools like metaphor, theme, um, diction, um, and, and, and others as uh, we incorporate them into how we live our lives as well. So both of the classes, both narrative healing and living poems, uh, deal with uh, narrative healing at large. Uh, the former one, which has carries that name, um, is is uh, you know very is very straightforward. Gets right to the heart of the narrative healing process. And living poems, writing lives does that also, but within the context of some poetry writing and crafting. Yeah. So, are, are you aiming primarily for the audience to be coaches and uh, health care providers, or are you aiming for a broader audience in these courses? So the, the courses, both of these courses are, are actually, and thank you for asking that, are, are actually pre-approved by the International Coach Federation for continuing coach education education units. Um, and our, our primary target audience, because we are, we're doing two things in each of the, in both of the classes, the same two things. We're giving the, the students an experiential grounding. The courses are both experiential. There's some theory, but we're not, saying learn this learn this learn this and get it back on a test we're mm -hmm. saying do this do this do this and see what happens um so we basically model how to use narrative healing in general and poetry writing more specifically with clients um whether you're a health and wellness coach whether you're a corporate coach whether you're a healthcare provider who wants to learn some coaching skills so those are the primary targets um, for the courses. Anyone who wanted to learn about narrative healing or uh, poetry writing as a healing modality would benefit as well. Um, but the primary um, target is uh, folks who have clients or patients who would like to incorporate narrative healing and then specifically poetry as healing into their, uh, their little toolkit. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you for that clarification. Reggie, and thank you for a wonderful conversation, as per usual. It's been great interacting with you today and listening to your poems and uh, sharing a common we space. Yeah, and, so, and thank, I, th you're welcome, Gary, and, and thanks for your presence and your questions, and it's, al it's always a pleasure to talk with you. All right. Have a wonderful weekend. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. -bye. Okay, bye.